Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth. Barn 8 is uh, Vegan's Ocean 11. It stars a million chickens. It's about a group of washed-up radicals trying to find redemption by attempting the most ambitious heist in animal liberation history. This is a wry and brilliant novel, painstakingly researched and daringly imaginative. It covers chicken intelligence, bird evolution, factory farm conditions, and so much more. Warning, it might make you a vegan. Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth, available now from Grey Wolf Press. What's going on, everybody? How are you? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast, and I am in Los Angeles. I have Monica Woods on the program today. She's a literary agent. She has her own shingle. It is called Triangle House Literary, based over in New York. It's a boutique agency. It represents leading voices in contemporary fiction and nonfiction. I haven't had a lit agent on the program in a while. And the reason for that is that I often don't know when they're out in LA, you know, like book, like authors come out on tour, but agents tend to be congregated in New York typically, though not always. And I happened to get in touch with Monica. She was in Los Angeles. She was kind enough to come over and uh, hang out with me and, and answer my questions. So we had a very productive discussion, very interesting discussion about publishing and writing and all the rest, and that is coming up. Now, I should also add that Monica came to my attention because several of my past guests are her clients, including Chelsea Martin, uh, Mira Gonzalez, uh, Juliet Escoria, Genevieve Hudson, and uh, Chelsea Hudson. So she's got a great eye for talent, and 
her clients have won all kinds of awards, from the Penn Bingham uh, to, uh, you know, they've been listed for the, uh, the National Book Award, the Kirkus Prize, Lambda Awards, the Believer Book Award. They have appeared on uh, the New York Times bestseller list and so on and so forth. It's an impressive roster of uh, authors and, and uh, achievements for uh, Monica, who is a young woman. She's a young agent, and she's uh, doing good work. So glad to have her on the program. You're going to hear that conversation in just a moment. I should add that the conversation with Monica was recorded prior to Shelter in Place. And in fact, I think, uh, you know, for the next several weeks, you're going to be hearing conversations that I taped before the coronavirus, uh, you know, really became a thing here in uh, the United States. So if you hear a certain ease and sunniness in our voices, (laughs) uh, this is why. If you can detect that we are sitting closer than six feet apart and that we're not constantly uh, using hand sanitizer, this is why. I suppose, too, I should mention that, I, you know, I don't know how long this uh, situation is going to unfold. None of us do. But I will be continuing the podcast and will be doing uh, remote recordings as needed until the uh, plague recedes. So, you know, I was uh, hiking here in Los Angeles, as one does, but now that is no longer possible. They had to close the trails down because uh, everybody in Los Angeles decided to do the same thing. And, like, people were clustered together. It was a nightmare. I'm glad they closed the trails. It was too much. But I'm also frustrated by how bloody stupid people can be. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like, the, you know, the people who still don't get it somehow, they're like out there in the street, like laughing and coughing on each other. <laughs> Holy hell. At the same time, I got to say, it is weird when you're walking down the sidewalk and then, you know, in an effort to keep uh, six feet apart and to be respectful, you sort of have to like walk out into the street and there's this mistrust. It feels weird. I think what you got to do is you got to make a joke about it. You got to say something like, oh, this is weird. Sorry. But, it, you know, it isn't always possible. So just trying to live in the age of coronavirus, what I have taken to now uh, in terms of being able to do something outside of my house is, is uh, cycling. I get on my bike, which is uh, fortunately still allowed, And I got to say, this is the best cycling environment in uh, the city of Los Angeles that I can recall. Because everybody's at home. There's not uh, nearly as much traffic. So I hope you're well out there. I hope you are uh, taking good care of yourselves and listening to... Uh, scientists and medical experts. 
Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. My guest today is Monika Woods, a literary agent who runs her own little boutique lit agency. It is called Triangle House, and it is in New York. So uh, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Monika Woods. I was on an AWP panel, and there was a poet from Minneapolis. I Forgive me, I can't remember his name. He was, he was really a good speaker. And he said, when I was in my 20s, all my friends were artists and poets and writers. And now we're in our 40s, and like I'm the only one left. Right. And so I just feel like what you were saying before about um, the long term of your career as a podcaster is really applicable to writers because, you know, you have your debut and then maybe it doesn't do as well as you'd hoped or you had a really good first couple of months and then you're not getting the reaction a year out or the paperback doesn't do as well. It doesn't really matter because books have long lives and you never know who's going to come to it. And I have so many examples on my own list of people whose books were successful after the after the fact. And I represent um, a lot of people who I think are going to become cult classics or the new and forefront of you know, public intellectuals. And I think their backlist is going to be revitalized by that. Um, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think I'm kind of learning this too late, not too late, but just later than I wish, because I'm that, I'm that guy. I published a novel in my late twenties mm -hmm. and then I don't know what happened. Like I got involved in all these other little projects and then I got married and started having a family Yeah, and then started doing TV writing and, you know, all these different things come up. Some of it's just, you know, it's necessity. You gotta I make think a family living. is art, actually. Um, I have this joke that if I ever win an award, I'm going to say, like, I'm going to bring my kid up there with me and say, like, this is the best thing I've ever made. Yeah. Um, I do think that um, – and this, I think, is becoming more accepted, is that making a home and tending to relationships and feeding the intelligence of a child is, is its own form of art. And I think for me especially, his creativity revitalizes me in a way that – I could have never guessed what happened. Um, and I do think that uh, it does take away from some immediacy of what we're creating. But in the long term, it makes everything so much more rich. Yeah. And I think, I guess like the the place that I'm at now, 
is just like, forget about all the noise, forget about mm-hmm. making money, forget about, um, readership, just do the work mm-hmm. and just keep doing it. And like, have you ever heard this phrase, like creative chain smoking? No. <laughs> where like you finish a project, like a lot of writers do this. They finish mm-hmm. a novel like the next day, they start the next one. Right. Like they just never stop. Yeah. That's kind of where my head is at. Mm-hmm. Just do it and let the cards fall. The challenge is that I have this, which takes up a lot of time. It depends on the week, but like I've got five people coming through this week. Wow. And I've got to produce an episode. So like yeah. it's really sneaks up on you how much time you spend on, uh, you know, this sort of passion project or side hustle or whatever. And then, um, and then you've got family stuff and then you've got day job stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of trying to find the man hours and the energy. Yeah. But, um, the ones, I guess the ones who can find the time and who just never stop and are able to work at it consistently, you know, stand the best chance at least. I think it's really popular right now to talk about being a writer or to like jokingly lament being a writer or to say like, oh, you have to actually write to be a writer or there's just a lot of punditry about writing, especially on Twitter. And I just kind of roll my eyes a little bit because it's like, I'm a writer as well as an agent, and I also put out a literary magazine every two months or so. What's it called? Um, it's called Liter- um, Sorry, it's called uh, Triangle House Review. Is the magazine? My agency is called Triangle House Literary, um, and I write. So I write for the magazine, and I write fiction. Um, but I can't do all of those things all the time, and there's a time and place for it, and. Um, I'm just not one of those people that believes that everybody has to be writing every day to be a writer. And I also just feel like if you're not enjoying being a writer, why are you doing it? And why would you complain about it? Like, you just don't have to do it. Right. <laughs> um, but I do think that talking about process is really wonderful. Like, I, I'm really a fan of what Jamie Atberg is doing, um, demystifying the process and just like... You mean on Twitter? Yeah. And she is helping people actually finish their work, which I have accountability processes that I have in place with my clients and try to help them finish a draft. But um, she's doing it on a scale that is just wonderful. And... Well, what is she doing again? She does like... I know she does like in the summer. It's like, let's all write a thousand, a thousand words a day. A thousand words a day. Yeah. But she also just is very open about her own process and she's written a lot of novels and um i always like hope someday that it'll get easier i'm like maybe my next novel won't take me 13 years to write right um and it's just so nice to have someone demystifying that and being like yes it does get easier your first novel teaches you how to write your second novel and um for me being a working mom and having so much of my life be this like literary immersed in this literary world you know, it's easy to lose sight of your own projects, but then when I'm obsessed with it and I need to write it, I find the time. Do you know that phrase? Like, my turn to be like, do you know a phrase? Um, everyone always has time to have an affair. No. It's like, you always find time to have your affair, like, because you're obsessed with having an affair, like you'll find the time you'll sneak it in. Um, and that's how I feel about writing. It's like, I'll always find time for it when I'm like feeling that level of passion for it. So when do you find the time? Just wherever, or is it like you yeah, get up? A... Yeah, yeah. Okay. I travel a lot, and when I travel, I write so much more. Why do you travel a lot? 
I don't know. I love to travel, and I get invited to conferences and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to Denver in June. I'm going to... I didn't mean to be, like, accusatory. Why are you traveling? Yeah, where, like, where are you going? <laughs> yeah, what does a literary agent need to travel for? But, I mean, that, that, yeah. that was the thing, because I was like, the business is in New York. Like, are you out yeah. on tour with your authors, or what is it? I do try to go to tour stops with my authors sometime. Like, my client, Genevieve Hudson, is going to be in New Orleans. I know Genevieve. Yeah, she's great. Um, and I'm like, maybe I can meet you in New Orleans for your book tour. Um but it's a lot of conferences and, um, you know, I tried to travel for Triangle House sometimes where we will partner with another magazine to do an event. So in Buffalo, we partnered with Peach Mag um, and in Toronto, we partnered with Hazlitt, for example. So I try to do stuff like that, too. I think it's really fun. And when I'm traveling, I've just broken myself free of all of my routines in a way that just like – and that's kind of what my trip to L.A. has been about, too, is like a detox of – the bad habits I've let myself get into in the past couple of months. Um, and it just like wake in, wakes me up and inspires me. Um, yeah, travel good that way. I mean, it is. <laughs> yeah. It just it just shakes you out of your like day-to-day, like whatever yeah. rhythm you get into. I, I experienced that over the holidays. I did a lot of traveling and I kind of felt like relaxed. I guess I had time off. Maybe mm-hmm. that's, that's just the whole, even though yeah. it was like family travel and sort of chaotic, it still was like, I came out of it. I was like, oh, that was good for me. Yeah. I needed to get out of like my day-to-day. I also have been trying to be more purposeful about what I'm getting out of it. So I would I went to Minneapolis like two years ago, and I was like, on the plane, I'm going to finish a draft of my novel. And then when I get to the hotel room, I'm going to send it to people. And I, if I give myself that goal, I usually will do it. Well, how I, clo- you must have been close to being done. Yeah, I was. But I'm a really fast worker when I'm actually focused. So I can write like 5,000 words in like... It would, I could write 5,000 words in less than a day if I'm, like, really in it. Um, but I try to, like, have a goal for our trip. So I went to Rome a few years ago, and I was like, I'm going to write four chapters of my novel while I'm there. And, you know, I did. Um, but on the day-to-day, it, it evens out because on the day-to-day, I don't write anything. Like, I can go a month without writing anything. That's because you're helping all these other people <laughs> with their books. Yeah, but it's also, like, being a mom and... I love to watch TV. <laughs> like, well, see, this is the thing, though. This is the thing. I feel like there are certain artists or certain writers, and I'm sure you have some in your stable or have come across them in your career, mm-hmm. who have a much more streamlined existence. They mm-hmm. don't. They don't have kids. They might not have a significant other. They, you know, live cheaply mm-hmm. because they don't have all these other dependents and everything else going on. So um, it enables them to, like, be the. Uh, the art monster, you know, you can just totally focus. I've always like, I think another thing about being a writer and just being a person in the world is thinking about all the different versions of yourself you could have been. Uh, Yeah. Right. And it's so fun to think about that. And the art monster version is definitely there, which is why I always, my joke about being a mom is like my biggest performance piece of art or my biggest act of literary creation, because I truly think that when I had a kid, I was just like, oh, it clarified so much for me and my priorities. Um, it was when I really started to take my agenting career really seriously. Like, I had always, always wanted to be an agent, and I had worked really hard. Um, why, but did you, why did you always want to be an agent? Like, when did this start? It started, okay, so I did the Columbia Publishing course in 2010. Um, and before that, I had worked for some authors as their assistants. I had volunteered at um, a literacy program called 826. Um, like the McSweeney's I, thing? Yeah. I did that for like two and a half years in Brooklyn. And um, I had also interned at the Feminist Press, um, which is this really great 
press that's based from the CUNY. Yeah, no, we're um, doing a book of theirs for the book club this month. Oh, yeah, I think that they do really great work. Um, and I also think that there are a lot of publishing people who started there, and I feel like we should all be in touch. But anyway, <laughs> another story for another right. time. But um, so I had done that, and then I did the Columbia Publishing course. I didn't even know what an agent was. And this was in 2010, so it was like the iPad had just been invented, and people were being really stupid about it and being like, the iPad is going to kill the novel, or like magazines are going to emerge yeah, from this. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Everything, everyone was like, I mean, I think I, I got swept up in it. I was like, what's going to happen? But then, you know, pretty quickly it was like, no, they're not going anywhere. Books aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Paper books yeah. are a, very durable. The only people who said that when I was at the CPC were, were agents. They were like, they were rolling their eyes. They were like, yeah, people said this about paperback books when paperback books came out, like right. that paperback books were going to ruin the novel. Um, and I just found them so positive in the face of change um, that I was like, cool. And then um, I realized after that, I had an internship at Bloomsbury um, where I did the production side. And I worked there for a few months while I tried to get my first job in publishing. And I was like, oh, if I work at a publisher, I have to like care what paper is used in a book. I have to care what color binding is used. I have to have this big schedule on a spreadsheet about which book comes out when and like make a deadline for it. Um, and I felt myself getting further away from the book. And I realized that if you work as an editor, you're basically working for readers. Those are That's your boss. And if you work as an agent, your boss is a writer. And I was like, oh, I want to be as close to writers as I can be. And um, once I realized that, things happened really fast for me. And I got a job with an amazing agent pretty much right away. I made that decision. And I stopped applying to any jobs that weren't agenting jobs. And I got like three interviews. And I got the first job that I applied for. What and, was um, with whom? Ellen Levine at Trinet Media. Oh, right. Yeah. She's like a legend. Um her list is incredible. And so I started off working for Marilyn Robinson and um, there was this Jersey Kaczynski book and I was a big Jersey Kaczynski fan because Polish. Um, and I had just read one of his books. In, right. And you're Polish. I'm Polish. Yeah. Um, and you were born in Poland. Born in Poland. Yeah. And then when did you come to the States? I was like one. I was really little. Okay. Yeah. Apparently I was like crawling down the aisles of the airplane. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but so I had this blog called Books I Just Read, um, which is now pretty much just my Twitter handle. But um, I had been reviewing books the whole time. I had been building up to finally getting a career in publishing. And Ellen printed up my blog. And in my interview, she had it on her lap. And she was like, I see you just read The Devil Tree by Jersey Kaczynski. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, I just signed his estate. And so it was like one of those moments of synchronicity that like, you're like, I got yeah, this. Yeah, I was like, I got the job. <laughs> and I got to sell his first serial rights to his essay collection that had never been printed before. So that was my first experience um, in publishing, like a real job. And I just loved it. And she just had this really amazing way of teaching you how to take it seriously and how to treat writers with the respect that they have earned and to, you know, I don't want to say it was a formal relationship, but it was a relationship based from the work and a very deep connection based on the work. And so I watched her do that for about two and a half years. And um, then I was like, I'm ready to start trying to build a list. And one of the things from watching Ellen work was I was like, oh, 
what we were talking about before, this takes a long time. Like she had had her own agency. She'd been in the business for decades. And I was like, oh, if I want to represent the equivalent of Marilyn Robinson, it's going to take 50 years or something like that. It's just the way that it is. Well, I mean, yeah, because it takes a long time for Marilyn Robinson to become Marilyn Robinson. Exactly. I mean, and she, and by the way, she also took like 20 years off. <laughs> yeah, no, and she hasn't published that many books. Yeah. Um, and Ellen has been there for all of them. <laughs> and so I was like, I need to get started. Otherwise, like, I'm never going to do this. Like if I just keep working for other people, I'm never going to um, build my own list. And so I started looking for a job where I could start building my own list. And I moved to another agency called Inkwell Management where sure. I worked for another agent as well as building my own list. And that's when I really started to get going. And the cool thing that Kim taught me, my boss there, Kim was who? Witherspoon. Okay. She represents Julie Oranger. So I got to work for really cool people for her as well. Um, I worked for Anthony Bourdain, which was really wonderful um, before he died. Did and you get to meet, like, deal with yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. He was wonderful to work for. Um, but what she taught me was there's no one way to be an agent. And you can kind of make it your own, but you're not bound to these traditional roles. And so it was really cool to have Ellen on one hand, who was very formal and, you know, traditional. And she had a very very well-formed idea of what being an agent would be. And then to go to Kim, who was like, oh, my interests can lead me wherever they lead me. And that can be my role as an agent. And they were very different in their approach, but they're both legendary women in the business. And so I got that really good fundamental mentorship from them. And then I was kind of like, I think that if I had more time to work on my clients, I my career would would take off. And I had to like make the decision to, it was a really scary decision. <laughs> I you know, who knows if it was the right time, but you know, you have to say I have to invest in myself. And that happened after I had my kid. Um, I had my kid and I was like, Oh, if I don't start taking myself seriously and like really, you know, make, take this risk, then you're never going to be able to make it. So I left that job and I became an agent on my own without a boss, without a mentor. Um, you started triangle house. Yeah. Well, so I went to another agency in between there and now I'm I have my own company, which is something that I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, I was kind of just like, if I don't take this risk, no one will take it for me and I have to just make myself do it. And yeah, so that was about four, I want to say four years ago. I'm, I'm really bad with time, but, um, but yeah, so it's kind of very, agenting is a risky thing. Like you're it, the, there's no standards in the industry for it. I don't think people know this. It's like, Every agent has a different relationship with their agency and every agency has different relationships, even within their own agents. So like your colleague, someone you work with could get paid differently than when they, in the way you get paid. So that's across the industry. There are some agencies who don't even give like health insurance to their agents. Um, so it's kind of a unstable job. Yeah. And um, you could have a dry year. You could not sell anything for a whole year. Then you could have like an amazing year and you know, but all has to even out. So, um, that's why it's such a long-term job because, um, I could sign someone in 2013 and still not have sold a book for them. But then maybe in two more years, I'll sell, finally sell their book. <laughs> or, or you sell their book or you sell their book and it doesn't do sales. And then maybe it picks up like two years after the fact. Sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. Like books will just catch on slowly. Yeah. Or I'll sell their first book for a small amount. And then their second book, because their first book will be successful, will go for more. Right. So, um, it's a lot about evening out and, um, building your reputation and your taste and being known for a certain kind of taste level or, um, 
category that you are really good at. And um, yeah, so when I made the decision to go off on my own, it was a lot about, you know, seeing if it would work because like you never have a guarantee that it's going to work. And so it was really, it, it was really rewarding to finally be on my own and be under my own steam. Um, you know, it's like you're you're a runner. Like if you win the race, it's because you won the race. Like nobody helped you. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, let's talk about taste, and let's talk about category, and let's talk about how you get known to be good at a particular thing. You know, in the business, because I know there are certain agents. It's like, oh, this person, the memoir is the thing, or this person, it's like celebrity books, or mm-hmm. you know, everybody sort of has their niche. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, what category? Or, if, or categories do you specialize in? Yeah. I think that for some agents, it's an accident or like a lucky accident because maybe their boss is like, hey, I can't do anything with this. What about you? And they luck into something or they, they realize they're really good at something that they never would have known. Um, and for some agents, it's like just a struggle to like keep trying to do the one thing that they think that they're going to want to do forever. Um, for me, I've always been like, started off as a fiction person, just being like, I only want to work on fiction. And working for Ellen, it was kind of like, yes, this is possible um, after you've attained this level. But starting off in fiction, you don't. That's not possible. You have to kind of diversify. And um, I realized that I was really drawn to nonfiction. It was what I was reading more and more as I was I don't know. I don't want to say growing up, but I was getting more and more drawn to nonfiction. And one of the books that really opened me up to that was Random Family by Adrienne Nicole Blanc. And um, I was like, oh, my God. And it still is. My dream is to work on a book that's like Random Family. It's like this really deep um, narrative journalism that is really entrenched. And um, I started opening my eyes to all of the what was going on in nonfiction. And I was like just seeing that there was all this really cool experimentation going on and I just started to understand it and I started following a lot of women who were doing really cool things in nonfiction. And that's really where it started. I was following them on Twitter and just like reading everything they posted. Um, Okay. I want to stop you because (laughs) I feel like this is um, something I noticed. I'm no longer on Twitter, but like when I was... I know you're not on Twitter because people are tweeting that you're not on Twitter. Oh, really? Yes. I don't, you wouldn't know that because you're not on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I can only imagine the millions of people who are mourning my loss on Twitter. But um, the thing that I noticed and that I sort of, um, y- you know, um, felt some regard for like, is you get a certain sense. I think if, you know, I'm sort of in the pipeline. So I get all the emails from publishers and publicists. Mm-hmm. I get a million books mailed to my house. Um, and so you over time develop a kind of barometer mm-hmm. for books that people are really excited about. Um, you know, right. You're, yeah. if, if you read any media, like if you're a sports yeah. fan and you read the sports page every day over time, you're like, yeah, the Lakers are probably going to win tonight because so-and-so's hurt and so-and-so's been playing well. You know, you get a certain sense of how things are going to go. It's not always right, but it's better than average. Right. And, uh, I think too, you can sort of develop a barometer for how excited people are on social, um, for certain writing, whether it's a book or it's writing online. Mm-hmm. You can also like certain people just on Twitter as performers on Twitter, like yeah. you know, literary performers or whatever. Um, you know, you can develop an affinity for them there that's shared by a lot of different people, but it just seems to me watching you, uh, on Twitter and watching you build your list. I was like, 
I, I noticed, I was like, she's got good taste because you were starting to pick off people uh, <laughs> as, as clients of yours that I had been a fan of and had recognized a certain energy around. And so kudos to you for being dialed into it. Is this something, I mean, it sounds like something that you did consciously. Yeah. And I guess the question is when you look around, um, in your particular, um, you know, vertical or area of the publishing business, I guess this is common. Is this what everybody's doing? It, it doesn't seem like enough people are doing it. Well, I think I was very lucky because I came to it earlier than some people who are maybe even younger than me or my age, um, did. <laughs> and I did come to it very purposefully and I think early. So like the first the first person I ever tried to become my client, the first person I ever emailed, and I was like, I'm an agent, I want you to be my client, you should write a book, was Alice Bolin. And um, she was writing these amazing critical personal essays. Um, I had never anything like what she was writing. And I knew, I just like knew, I was like, oh, this is going to be big and she's going to be important. And she, at first she was not ready to write a book, and but we stayed in touch. But like, you know, I just happened to follow her on Twitter. So I read everything she wrote and I would always be like, I read this thing that you did. I loved it. And we stayed in touch. And so when she was finally ready to write her book, um, we just connected, worked on the proposal. That was that. Um, but it was definitely a purposeful thing. I have like a little bit of a system, but now what is, what is the system? <laughs> I follow someone and then I look at who they're following or who they're recommending. And then I follow that person. And then I look at who they're recommending. And usually by the third outlier it's someone that not everybody knows because what i'm what i think now is that more people have caught on to that system and it's really hard to find writers who don't have agents now or writers who are publishing a lot and don't have agents now i think that um maybe some of them are getting agents too soon but or maybe there's just more really good writing maybe there are more agents i don't know but um i think that when i started doing it twitter was maybe a little bit it was different um, it was more about some of those more long form things. It was more about performance art. Now it's a lot of opinions. And, yeah. um, I have been less inspired by it lately, to be honest with you. I often thought that if I didn't have a job that was so, like you say, boosting these people, I would take a break, <laughs> even though it was so fundamental to my origin as an agent. Um, because I've seen a lot of hate. I've seen a lot of nastiness. I've seen a lot of canceling, um, I've seen a lot of opinions purported as fact, which I just think is not ever the way to go about that. Um, and for me, I try to steer clear of all of that. I just try to support writers and, you know, say things that I think are funny. <laughs> um, I try not to get too deep into it because it can be really, it can drag you down. I totally understand why you would quit. Um, yeah. It just gets to be <laughs> like psychic, the psych, the amount of psychic energy it yeah. was taking up. I was just like, you know. Enough. But a lot of my writers will be – I have some writers who are like on deadline and they they turn – they take Twitter off their phones um, for a lot of different reasons. Some of them are like they don't want it to influence them and like the fear of the reaction. Like one cool thing about Twitter that I love is that writers have the chance to test out what they're working on. So you can be like – I love when I read something and I'm like, oh, this person's tweeted about this so much. They're obsessed with it and it's like – infecting their work or the other way around. I love that. And I mean, like the, <laughs> the psychographics, if that's the right word of social media, like if you follow somebody on Twitter, you in some way get to know them, obviously. Yeah. And 
I like you, it's not crazy to me for you to be like, oh yeah, this person's obsessed with this. Yeah. I know that I know something about their, they kind of become like a reality star Mm -hmm. of a certain kind. Or I think it's being a public intellectual, um, which we don't think of it that way, but you know, I'm again, I came to this all a little bit earlier. Um, just what does, what does earlier mean? Well, so I started, I was on Twitter before 2010. Um, I've been on Twitter for a long time. My husband is in tech and he was on Twitter and it got him like a very important connection very early on. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be, this is something I want to be a part of. Right. I think it's going to be important. Um, I, I, yeah. So I, I was on it. I've been on it for more than 10 years and, um, I just don't think that that many publishing people have been on it that long. And, um, I don't even remember what I was saying. I mean, just like in terms of how you started to develop your, your method or oh, whatever. Pu- and being a public intellectual. Right. Um, back then you had the opinion pages and that's where you were a public intellectual. Now it's on Twitter. And, yeah. um, again, it's purporting the opinion as fact. That is the problem. I don't think it's the, having the opinion is fine and becoming very good at expressing your opinion is super important. Um, that's something that I have been trying to do better with myself, but it's saying that you're right all the time, which is Twitter reinforces that. Um, so it's really cool to be able to test out your material and test out even just sentences. Like I really love to like lob really a sentence that I worked really hard on onto Twitter, like kind of without context and see what happens. One time a writer responded like, this is actually a really good sentence. I'm going to steal it. And I was like, that's my sentence. Like I worked on it. <laughs> Don't you fucking <laughs> do you touch my sentence. Is? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I think that can be really cool, but it's about that. It's about the attitude that comes behind that, which is like this idea that we're all right all the time. I was like joking that it's like, we're all being and our desiccated corpses are being animated by the idea that we have an opinion and that's what being online is like, <laughs> you know, like, and I was thinking about this just this, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because we're in the middle of this election when well, you just quit Twitter <laughs> and I just quit Twitter, but it's like this, this delineation, um, between principle, like having principles that are sort of bedrock for you. Like, for example, like I believe healthcare is a right. I believe everybody should have access that you shouldn't be you should not be able to go to see a doctor or get like cancer medicine because you're too poor. So that seems like bedrock principle to me. Yeah. Um, versus the part of me, which, uh, often predominates, which is like always doubting and uncertain and in a gray area and like understanding that like, you know, um, I don't know. Beliefs are sort of dangerous to me. Like I don't have too many hardcore beliefs because, sort of a terminus, you yeah. know, and I just, I'm all, I've been wrong too much. Yeah. I'm like, I am like, I could be wrong. I always think like, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe it's not, you know, <laughs> so it's like trying to like, but I don't want to stand for nothing. Do you that, see what I'm saying? <laughs> that's my joke to people who like want to become agents. I'm like, you have to always believe that you're right, but that your rightness and that your belief is not placed in yourself. It's placed in other people. So if you hate hearing no, and it crushes you, like becoming an agent is not right for you, but it's not about you. It's about your belief in other people, which is really hard to kind of like, that's a shade of gray. Like, sure. I can be like, I'm smarter than everybody, but my novel got rejected and everybody's wrong. Um, and talking about myself, I think that that would be arrogant and like, I wouldn't want to ever have that belief in myself, (laughs) but I can easily, easily be like this novel that I sent out on behalf of one of my writers and got rejected the people who rejected it are hundred percent wrong and that this novel is brilliant. And so I have to always be like, I'm right. I'm right. Which is really hard 
because like anyone can falter when in the face of adversity, but um, it's because I'm doing it for other people that I'm able to keep on doing that and just like ignore all the noise and all the rejection. Um, and, and you and you t- take on writers that you truly believe in. Yeah, you're not just like trying yeah. to like. Well, I might be able to make a buck off this. Like right. you're, you're taking on clients that you plan on having a long relationship. Yeah. with. Yeah. So if someone rejects them, it's like I'm hurt. So I, I like, there's this whole thing with writing Twitter again I, I don't mean to like disparage writing Twitter because I, I think some of it is really wonderful but um I see a lot of using the word gatekeeper as like a slur almost like oh you're just a gatekeeper or you're a gatekeeper so you're not it's like by default people think that I'm trying to keep them out but I just don't agree with that at all I think that um it's the wrong way to go about it because like every agent I know wants to discover the next best thing. I don't know a single person who's like, you know, trying to keep people out. Everybody wants to be the one to discover the next brilliant genius novelist or nonfiction writer. So, you know, it's it that is something that is really tough too to be like, I'm a human being. <laughs> I am dealing with way more rejection than any writer at any given time because if you think about it, I believe in all these writers more than anything so much that I dedicate my career and my life to them. And then when they get rejected, it's like I'm being rejected. And then that times every writer that I have. I think that's something, (laughs) I think that's something that a lot of writers don't necessarily realize is how much it hurts an agent when things don't work out. Yeah. Like they, you know, obviously the writer feels rejected Mm -hmm. because it's their work that didn't get the yes. Yeah. But it's painful for the agent too. Yeah. And so I think when writers are going out to try to find representation and they're hitting headwinds and it's like, wow, it's just, you know, people love my voice, but they don't think that it's the right fit or, you mm-hmm. know, you, you know, all the form, not yeah. form letters, but there's tropes that you just have to sort of rely on after yeah. a certain point because you can't yeah. make it new. There's so many of them. <laughs> I mean, you just, I they, there's only so many, there's only so <laughs> yeah. many different ways to say, yeah, I don't think mm-hmm. it's great. And you're trying to be, um, polite and, you know, kind or whatever. But, um, the thing that I, the point that I'm trying to make is that like, there's a huge emotional investment in taking somebody on Yes, that is, uh, risky and, and emotionally fraught. And so for an agent to make that leap, I totally get how you would have to really feel it because you know, you're going to be in the trenches with that person. Yeah, And I have to feel like in the face of everybody telling me no, that I'm going to find someone to say yes, because it deserves that. Yes. Um, but yeah, like my, one of my phrases is that like your work deserves the advocate that's going to be ferocious and just like this enthusiastic, you know, take no prisoners attitude to your work. Like every writer deserves that. And, um, if I don't have that, I would bring you down. I sincerely believe that the wrong agent is worse for a writer's career than no agent at all. Right. Um, and I just, you know, I, I go to these conferences, I meet with writers every day. Um, and I, I, I interact with a lot of writers and I just don't know if some certain kinds of writers believe that because, you know, they think that an agent is the one who's going to make it all happen for them. And I just, an agent doesn't have a magic wand to wave and say, you're going to be a successful writer. They All they can do is work really hard on your behalf. And if you don't have someone who wants to do that unflinchingly in the face of every kind of adversity, then that person is the right agent for you. Yeah. I mean, the best, I always, I've said this before on the show, it's been a while, but the best advice that I ever got when I was out looking for an agent was follow the enthusiasm. 
doesn't matter what agency, doesn't matter how high powered they are. What ultimately matters Mm -hmm. is if they are like a true believer in you and your work. I have the same and the same feeling towards editorial relationships too. Um, you want to follow the natural, what feels natural and what feels right. Um, and if maybe even if a writer is getting an offer for more money from an editor who has them trying to make changes that they don't believe in, then that's not the right fit for them. Right. Um, and one of the things I'm very proud of is that as an agent, I want to find the editor who's smarter than both of us to take the book to the next level. Um, and, I believe very strongly in that team mentality of like, here's what we bring to the table. What does the editor bring to the table? And I think a natural enthusiasm for the project and for the writer and the editor is going to be like, well, what's your next book going to be? Cause they're thinking about long-term. Sure. Well, and what about when it comes to social media, just to sort of like, I, want, I have like additional thoughts here that I want to get <laughs> to while we're still sort of there. Um, you know, you talk about people who have like stickiness on social or they're able to get a following or, mm-hmm. you know, you happen to like their tweets, but like, uh, does it always, is it always the case or is it most of the time the case that if somebody's good at like say Twitter, um, that they'll also be good on the page in their books? I mean, do you ever like, yeah, do you ever I, see something like someone's like, oh, they're good on social, but then like on the page, it's like, it's not working here or they don't have, yeah, you know, do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. You're, you're basically saying, is Twitter a true testing ground for a long form narrative um, or even like artful sentences um, being strung together a little bit more closely? Um, I think that this is very subjective, but um, for me, someone who's able to approach Twitter as a art project is and, and has done so for a very long time is going to be able to approach a novel or a narrative nonfiction project also. Um, but not as many people approach it that is with that intentionality. That's the way to do it. By yeah. The, way. <laughs> the best Twitter is people who make their Twitter feed like an art project. Yeah. And like I represent Mira Gonzalez and I've represented her for years and years. Um, and I she was one of the first people where I was like, oh, she's doing it the way that if I was an artist, I would do it, um, approaching it in this way. And she did a book about her tweets that was like... What, selected tweets? Yeah. Yeah. So she, I mean, you have it. It might be up there somewhere. (laughs) Um, And I think that um, not everyone is approaching it that way because it's also the self-promotional machine. So that's a big, to me, a big distinguishing factor is like, are you approaching it with fun and energy and artistic merit? Or are you approaching it with like connecting with people or, you know, a mongering, mongering your opinion all the time? Like, you know, and there's differences where it's like, let's say it's a novelist or an essayist or something versus like a narrative journalist or, um, someone who is a little bit more pop, um, so yeah, I, I do think that it can be the proving ground, but I don't necessarily think that it means it's not a one-to-one ratio. There's definitely been people whose work I've admired on social and then haven't been able to put it through. Even not even that I represent, but people whose books I've read. Um, yeah. Well, but, what about yeah. <laughs> what about like, yeah? What about instincts? Because you know, in, in your job, you've got a that's what you go by a mm-hmm. lot of the time. You know, you have to have a certain intuition or instinct about when somebody's got the goods and. Yeah. when to like make that leap and that commitment to represent them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you can't look back. Like once you're in the best thing to do is just to march. Right. Uh, and, and I guess like the, the question that I have is like, how often are you wrong or have you been wrong or do like, how much faith do you have in your gut? I think that, um, I have ignored my gut 
in the past and regretted it where I would have like a smidge of a negative feeling about something I also had a positive feeling about and I would let myself run with the positive feeling instead of listening to the negative feeling. And in those cases, I do look back and I do regret it, but I don't, it's been rare that that's happened. Um, And usually that's based on editorial compatibility or impatience. Like, I think that for me, what I've learned is that the kind of writer I work the best with is a hardworking writer. And if I've signed someone who has kind of, after the fact, let it slip that they are a little bit more patient, or maybe they think that the editor will fix everything and that, you know, they're not putting the work in up front with me, um, that's when things I think go awry a little bit. I think that in the in, in the kind of environment that we're in, um, you need to have a very polished manuscript to go out with it to editors because editors have so many things that they do now. They're not just editing. It's not just sitting at the desk editing. A lot of editors I know will take like a flex day so they can get their editing done at home. When they're at the office, it's meetings, it's um, emails, it's, you know, running back and forth. It's author management, author care. And you know what I mean? (laughs) Psychological triage. Mm -hmm. I mean, Um, even like, let's say there's a check that's missing. They have to chase that. Um, There's a lot of housekeeping that editors are doing. And the editing is like after that. It's like on the subway. Yeah. Or like at home on the weekends. I don't, I mean, agents and you guys, the amount of reading, that's another thing I think people might not appreciate enough is like the amount of reading. Yeah, if I go out with a novel, I've read it at least three times. And then just people soliciting. I mean, like, yes. you know, or if you're an editor, you're getting agents or dumping manuscripts on your yeah. desk. If you're an agent, then you have writers who want to get represented constantly, you know, constantly contacting you. And I can imagine, maybe it's maybe I'm wrong, but I can imagine it must be a little stressful because, you know, I everybody fucking hates email. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And then imagine like people are coming at you with like, you're getting a dozen or more emails a week from people who are like, read my novel. Yeah. And I can imagine they could, it can get overwhelming and you could wind up letting certain emails slide. Mm -hmm. It happens to us all. It seems like they just get buried. What what would, what would torture me is, is the thought that like, what if something great gets buried in my inbox? I mean, I've rejected stuff that has been incredibly successful. I think that what I learned is that I can't represent everyone and I shouldn't represent everyone. That would be bad. Um, Wait, what did you reject that went on to big? I shouldn't say it, but um, because I I just didn't like it. And well, I probably wouldn't have sold it. That's the thing is if I had taken it on, I probably wouldn't have sold it because I didn't understand it. How how did it feel to see it go big? What did you feel like? I don't know. It's just kind of like, oh, of course, (laughs) you know, like, and this happens all the time. But for me, it's more of like this writer deserves their own home. And like, that wasn't me. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that every agent does that. And, you know, if you, <laughs> if you do the, if you're in the business long enough, there's bound to be those situations. Of course. And editors have the same thing. They have their, I told you so list. Maybe their boss wouldn't let them bid on a book, wouldn't let them buy a book. And they go back to them after it's a New York Times bestseller. And they say, remember when I tried to buy this book and you wouldn't let me? You should have let me. Right. <laughs> Listen to me next yeah, time. Yeah, I don't have anyone I have to account to that way. But um, what I will say is that um, my clients want me to focus on their work. And if I represented you, you would want me to focus on your work. Hell yeah. You wouldn't want me like spending eight hours reading a query that I was never going to take on just so I could pass on it more nicely without a form. Um, I just, 
I think that if you flip the script on yourself and you say, if this person was my agent, what would I want them to be doing today? It wouldn't be responding to a person that they're never going to work for. And I I think that's really hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's like the problem of our society. Um, And this is like the least indicative of that. And it's like not a big deal in the scheme of things. But as an agent and a writer, I kind of get it a little bit more clearly where it's like, yeah, I don't want my agent responding to every single email she gets saying, I'm sorry, I read these. It takes a long time to read 10 pages. Like if you think about it, if you go to a writer's conference, you meet with 10 people to 20 people, you read 10 to 20 pages of their work. Like do the math on that. Just to go to this writer's conference, you're getting paid like $50. You have to read 200 pages. I And like that just is... I could be reading my client's work instead. Right. So, um, yeah, you got at some point, you yeah. gotta, at some point, don't you have to cap how many people you can represent? I think you do, but also you have to think about again, the long term, which is that every client is going to be at a different stage of their careers all the time. And like, yeah, some people are, they might be working on a book for six years right. or more. Or you finally have a client who sells a book a year, but like they sell it on partial to their editor and their editor is more of their editorial partner than you are. Um, or you're doing option deals on proposals and you get to read the finished book when it's done instead of the drafts. Um, yeah. So I, everything changes and like every, every writer needs something different from you at every moment. Um, and so, you know, I know agents who have several hundred clients, like, I don't think that'll ever be me, but, um, you know, if you have a really good assistant that you trust and you I was going to say, that yeah. sounds like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like both of my bosses that I had, who are my mentors had a lot of clients, but they'd been doing it for so long and they were just masters at knowing the cycles and they knew where every, every other client was. And like, that was one of the fun things about being an assistant. I'd be like, okay, this person. And I would have never even heard of them, even though I'd worked for the person for like two years. And I'd be like, who is this random person that just emailed me? They say you're your client. And they'd be like, oh, yes, that's this the person, this person. They should be doing this now. They would know. And I think that for me with my clients, I have the same recall. Um, and so you just have to know where everybody is and like see what you can fit in and like what you have space for. For me, I tend to go towards writers who are very hardworking do you, do you go to them or do they come to you? Both, both for sure. But what predominates? Um, I would say when I first started, predominantly I was going to people and I was reading the slush also a lot, which I still do. I read every single piece of slush that comes to me. I might not finish it, but I do read it. Um, now I get a lot of client referrals, which is really exciting and it always means so much to me when my clients recommend me. Um, but I still like reach out to people all the time, but like you could reach out to five people and zero of them respond to you. Um, but I also am very busy. Like I have a client list that I love and I am doing what I'm doing so I can focus on them and work on, work on their stuff more. Um, but yeah, I think that I go towards people who are really hardworking and I tend to go towards. What does that mean? What does that mean? Really hardworking? How do you know? I have a sense. They read a lot. Um, they read a lot. They, always are procrastinating their writing with other writing. Um, they publish pretty often or they don't publish at all because they're working so hard on something. Like I have a client who's been working on his revisions for his novel for like four years. And I'm like, so I, I think that's amazing. Like yeah. to have that drive to, to, for one novel, getting it right. Yeah. Getting it right. Um, or I tend to go towards people who I feel need me. I'm not the kind of agent who's going to be like, part of a beauty contest um, because I'm relieved that that person has found someone else who's excited about their work. I'm not saying that I never would, but that's just generally not my style. I like to sit it out and um, find the things that are like under, 
under the you know <laughs> what's the phrase under the radar <laughs> yeah under the radar yeah, yeah. <laughs> find the stuff that um maybe other people aren't thinking about or excited about but that needs me and um that's something that is really rewarding to be like you know this person didn't have anybody else believe in them, but I did. And we brought it over the finish line together. It's kind of thrilling when you see somebody in a very early stage and you know, they're good mm -hmm. and you know it before most everybody else knows it. Yeah. That's fun. It's like the most rewarding. Thing. I think I've got a little bit of that. I mean, just cause yeah, I, I think it, you do too. <laughs> just well, just because I have like, I, I like Sarah Broom's book. Mm -hmm. I read it. I was like, this is going to win every award. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it won the national book award. I think it won more than more that. than that. <laughs> but it was, it was like, I like, I was certain. Yeah. And it's so weird. I just like, and I think I tweeted it. I was like, this will win. Yeah. Um, and I felt like very, like I was just patting myself on the back when it happened, but, um, so you could be an agent. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know about that, but like, I think that, I know that thrill of seeing, especially a young person mm -hmm. who just comes out of the gates and you're like, Oh man, mm -hmm. like this person's got it. They're yeah. very gifted. And, uh, but that isn't the whole story. Like there, there also has to be like the desire and the focus mm -hmm. and that hardworkingness. Mm -hmm. Like you got to really want it. Yeah. Or you got to really like, you know, it's like, you got to really have the disease. Yeah. It's like, I feel like, you have to be a little bit single-mindedness and single-minded in your pursuit. Um, and you have to, again, take the long view or you have to have someone who can bring you down to that long view that you trust. Um, I think that the agent author relationship is really important because of that. It's a lot of collaboration, a lot of planning and a lot of like, just like planning that you wouldn't think goes into things like I'm trying to think of a good example, but you know, let's say you're a writer and you write fiction and nonfiction um, and you want to figure out how to do that successfully, like the agent is the person you'd ask. Um, and you'd, you'd structure that plan and you think about the next five years, the next 10 years. And the person you have those conversations with is your agent, not your editor. So, um, yeah. And I do get very excited. One of the, my, one of the most, my favorite things to do is be someone's fan and to read them and to appreciate their work from a distance. And then all of a sudden I get to work for them. Um, that is something that is very special to me because I, I, first and foremost, every writer that I represent, I'm like a huge fan of their work and I just like want to be able to read it all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and every writer, everybody, but you know, especially artists need an, you know, you need an advocate, mm -hmm. you need multiple advocates. Mm -hmm. So I know that the business has changed and there's all these, you know, all these indies and people are submitting direct to publishers and it can work that way too. Mm -hmm. But even there, you know, you need somebody who's advocating for you at these little houses. I know. I, I think that part of my bread and butter, especially early on, was finding unagented writers who were publishing with small presses who I really liked. It's not like, you know, just because you publish with a small press, I would reach out. But um, one of those the things that I've learned is that even small presses have their agendas and can, you know... I don't want to say anything too. Oh, please come on. Um, controversial. Make, let's make some but news. I don't think small presses are necessarily good. Um, just because it's a small press doesn't mean that it, they're going to be ethical. Doesn't mean that they're going to treat you um, with industry standards. In fact, a lot of them think that because they're small presses, they have an excuse to not do that. And I've just seen so many examples of small presses who have treated their authors poorly. I don't want to say they've tricked them, but you know, sometimes they have, you know what well, I mean? Like, and I think too, like a lot of these small presses are just operating on a shoestring. Yeah. And, they for sure are. And so they don't have the, like, they don't have like a, 
accounting department. They don't have like a marketing department. It's like two people in their living room. Yeah. But I think that just, again, an assumption is because of that, what they're doing is pure. But if you do the math, there is still money involved. And a lot of times it's money that should be give, going to the author, but is not. But it's not. And so it's my job to make sure that's not happening or to um, help a writer get out of that position when they find themselves in it. So this is a case that I think I feel safe talking about. <laughs> There's this press called Curbside Splendor. It kind of went viral a little bit. They weren't paying their authors correctly. And um, I had, you know, taken a look at two of their contracts. And, you know, they just... Again, I just don't think that we should be associating pure intentions with all small presses. It's just not. Yeah, it's just, it's like just not right. Indie presses, man, yeah, they're so yeah. pure, but not always. No, no, it's no. Still people. Yeah, I have always. I've. I, it's something that I like. I'm very careful about the way I talk about it. But um, hire a lawyer. That's what I'll say. If you don't have an agent, but you have a press that's a small press that's interested, you know, join the Writers Guild. <laughs> it's like ninety dollars for a year, and you have access to a lawyer who can review your contract. And it's like the best, it's a good $90 to spend. And, um, that's good advice. Yeah. Just do it. Like you, you don't need to find an agent. And by the way, $90 is the <laughs> cheapest lawyer you're ever going to find. I think it's $99 for a dues for a year. Still, that's like an hour. That's like, a, that's like less than an hourly rate for yep. most lawyers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you can, your dues give you access to legal advice and you don't need to get someone to agree to do it. They just have to do it with an agent. You have to get someone to like agree and, you know, be interested in the next book or whatever. But um, yeah, you can just hire a lawyer and then they'll save you a lot of grief. Like there was a small press contract I negotiated that the the editor had said, this is above average royalty rate for books. And it was actually below average and the person knew it. And um, I was able to negotiate it up higher. And the person who whose book it was literally made thousands of dollars more than they would have if I hadn't negotiated the, the, the project. And like, I just think that's happening all over the place. Or like some small presses will be like, oh yes, we get the film rights in your work. That's standard. And it's not. And they can just like say whatever they want. <laughs> and again, people are just like, oh, that's a labor of love for them. They, they wouldn't screw me over. Right, right. And again, this isn't a blanket statement about anything. It's just that if you're a writer, you don't have an agent, you have a small press interested, just join the Writers Guild, get access to their legal team the contract. <laughs> that's, that's great. And you know what, as a, as a writer, you want your agent to be your advocate in that way too. It's not just, you know, championing your work and beating the drum for you as a creative person, but it's also watching out for your business interests so mm -hmm. that you can focus on that creative work. Yeah. Uh, cause most writers I know that's like a part of the game that they are not necessarily interested in or have much aptitude for. Uh, yes. And it, I think agents are, you know, in the art world, because they love to read and they love, you know, advocating for writers, but they also like, I don't know, most agents I know just like love to negotiate a contract over like 0.5% of, you know, whatever, smaller percent. Like we love minutia. We love that stuff. And like, you should definitely trust your agent to do that stuff. It's, I don't know. I don't, again, no blanket statements, but most agents I know will like be like, don't give this up. Don't give them this, ask for this the, and advocate for you on a business level. That's like really fun. My parents always like, sometimes they'll joke and they'll be like, oh, you could still go to law school or you would be a great lawyer. And I'm just like, yes, I'm doing that now. I fight 
over contracts every day and it's super fun and I love getting into the nitty gritty of that. That's <laughs> and great. most agents I know are like that. They're like, you know, they have their own pet peeves about contracts that they like always look to. Everybody has that. I'm just like, <laughs> cause like, I just feel like too, there is such a thing as like honest business negotiation. It's mm-hmm. a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. It's gotta happen. Yeah. <laughs> But man, it can bring out the worst in people. Yeah. You really see a person's true colors when it gets down to brass tacks and you start talking numbers and yeah. you know, a lot of the time though, I mean, I say that and like a lot of the time in my, in, in my life and, uh, business dealings, it's been fairly uneventful. I think people want to do the right thing. Everybody's trying to look out for their own interests, but sometimes people just get like, they, they close down, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, uh. You know, they become Gollum or something. <laughs> I always tell writers that like your agent is your diplomat and like we can translate for you and we can translate for the publisher. So my go-to example for this is like, let's say you wrote a novel and the cover comes in and you hate it and you don't want it to be the cover of your book. Um, it's my job to tell the writer, well, the reason they put a woman's back on the title on the cover of your book is because every book they've ever sold that had a woman's back sold like a million copies. And they think that. Is that true? No, I'm just. Oh, okay. that up. But like, I'm going to put a woman's back. Here's on the an cover example. Of my book. <laughs> right. Like, let's say it's got a woman's face on it and you're like, oh, no, I don't want that. I'm like, well, they put this there because it signifies something. Or like to, a cupcake and some strollers. or Yeah, or like that color blue that was really popular right. however long ago. You're like yellow or pink, like whatever color it is. It's like signifying something to consumers. And um, that's why it's there. And so all I can do is translate that reasoning for my writer. And then I have to take my writer's, you know, sometimes profane disgust at what they've been given and translate it to artful critique to the publisher and be like, and also be positive and put a positive spin on it. So it's like, so you don't have to say that stuff to your editor. You can have someone else say that and be the messenger. And you need to go between otherwise yeah. things, because you don't want to have, you don't want to have like rancor. Yeah. Like poisoning the creative collaboration that you're going to be involved in with your editor. Yeah. You want to be able to keep that pure. Right. And the agent lets you do that. So I want to ask you something shifting gears slightly. Um, like it's, it's something that's been bothering me lately. I don't know if I've been in a mood lately or if I've just, I've been getting cynical. Um, I don't know what it is. You know, sometimes you get like that where you're just like, yeah. but I, uh, was thinking about how, whenever I read a book, like the writer, especially it's a, it's a, it's a novel or I guess more explicitly a memoir or a work of nonfiction where the author is very clearly on the page, mm-hmm. either implicitly or explicitly. And they're always cool. Like, <laughs> Even when they're flawed, they're cool. Uh huh. And I'm like, part of me is just like, ugh, everyone's so fucking smart, but in a you know understated way, they're always the hero. And I guess like as a reader, that's what you want. You want the person who's narrating the book, or the person who's the main character, to be the hero. That's just, I might be saying something very elemental, and I might be feeling bothered by something that's just like, well, yeah, dude. You don't want to read a book by some asshole. Yeah. It's like, I, but I find it annoying. (laughs) No, I'm with you. I have found that there's a, a, 
definitely a new wave of authors being present on the page or directing their readers or like addressing their readers more. Um, I don't know why. Like, what do you mean? Like by saying like, hi reader and mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff? Like direct address to the reader. Oh, um, like Ferris Bueller talking to the yes, camera. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, I've seen that a lot. And um, yeah, I think again, part of it is trends and part of it is how we are. Re- part of it is like, we all have to show ourselves and the self is such a commodity now in, in the way that we relate to culture and on TV and film and in books. Um, but I also think that, you know, the people writing novels now and the people writing memoirs now, they're a certain age and we all came of age in the same ocean. Like one of the things I always use as an example here is Law and Order SVU. Like so many people watched it. I've never seen an episode of it. Well, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away because it infects your brain. Yeah, right. And I think that um, there's like a law and order SVUification of narrative. Um, and I think that we're all swimming in the oceans of our shared cultural um, touchstones. And like we wouldn't even know that we're doing something the same as someone else because it's something that's so elemental to our taste and our in our artistic process. And, so, and there's also yeah. just the natural, like you are self-mythologizing when you write a book that has any implicit or explicit autobiographical, you know, um, direction. Yeah. I guess like, I don't know. There's just a part of me that's like, I sometimes feel like, oh man, you gotta be so fucking cool. There's also this growth <laughs> of cult of personality. Yeah. Um, what do you mean on social? Mm-hmm. And like, again, that opinion and yeah, there's the, definitely, I think a growth of personality when it comes, especially with, I think actually it's more of, maybe not, maybe it's not more of nonfiction or fiction, but I think that now you're not only the work that you produce, but you're your own brand. Um, yes, personal brands. You don't, I had a buddy try to talk because I got very, I bristled. That's part of the thing I'm like rejecting maybe to my own detriment. Buddy of mine was like, no dude, you just like, everyone's, you know, you got to deal with it. That's reality. And Mm -hmm. You're just trying to reject reality. And then there's another part of me. Like I can read other things where I'm like, this is exactly the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And like the only way to get quiet enough and to really be able to speak with authenticity is to kind of remove myself from it all. Like that cultural ocean that you're talking about, like go swim off into your own little corner of it and like, just focus on what interests you and your own work and let the cards fall where they may. But I do think that you... I think everybody needs to interact with the literary world in some way. And you have your wonderful way of doing it. Um, And not every writer has figured out what that way is for them. Um, And it's very easy to go and be performative on social media and say some opinions and get followers. Um, Even if you're right, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Not for me. I I was never like I was, I felt like I tweeted a lot. I never had more than 7,000 followers. I mean, that's way more than most people have. I guess so. (laughs) I was like, when is this shit going to explode? I'm entertaining. I'm, yeah. I'm feeding you people gold. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I really wasn't. But I mean, I think a lot of writers think they're feeding people gold on Twitter. Um, and but, for me, but I was also, again, very lucky because I came to it a little bit earlier, but I'm also the same age as a lot of these people. So right. I liken it to like our parents are on Facebook now, right? And like uh, we're, we're all embarrassed of what our parents are doing on Facebook. Right. Um, and I, I just feel like, you know, everybody comes to these tools with different ideas of what they can accomplish for themselves. For me, I very, very quickly saw a kind of 
over sincerity or over earnestness that just turn me off. Just and that's my taste. I don't like that kind of writing, and it can affect social media presence and Twitter just as much. And I think if you look at my list, you'll see that I'm very much so led by that one marker. And I just get turned off by anybody who's like super sincere, overly sincere or performative about their sincerity. Um, That doesn't mean I don't like sincerity. It's just like it has to come a little bit more naturally or it has to be more earned. Or it has to be like you have to leaven it a little bit. Or be intimate about it. Um, Just like a little bit of both. Like (laughs) just don't be sincere all the time. Yeah. Well, there's this writer um, named Maud Newton. Um, Yeah, I know. I've had Maud on the show. I really respect her. And coming up and um, I was a book blogger, not ever successful at it, but like that's she what I like, did. <laughs> she, she was like book blogger, like 1.0. Yes, she, she was like the exactly. book, book blogger. So I came after her for sure, but I always just respected what she had accomplished and the way that she had done it, which she had done it in a way that wasn't what you're talking about with this like cool, um, since like she was sincere in a genuine way that was about letting people in, not about like putting herself out. It feels like that was such a, like a, not fluky. I don't want to like under, um, I don't want to mischaracterize the amount of work or intentionality that she put into it, but like it really just started from a pure place of enthusiasm Yes, as and, a reader. And she's a great writer and she's just like, I don't know. So I was always inspired by her and the way that she conducted herself. And I, she was always the one that I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, when it came to like my book blogging, which RIP, I don't do it anymore, but I do sometimes write reviews. But, we didn't, um, nobody blogs anymore. I mean, some people yeah. do, but it's, it, you, the blog used <laughs> it was to be too much. It's a, I did it forever yeah. or I didn't do it forever, but I did like, like the amount of like consistency of, with this podcast over a decade, there was a time in my life where like for two or three years I blogged every day. Yeah. I, my book blog was like, I re- I wrote about every single book I read. So it was like, I was read if I read 50 books in a year or whatever, that's a lot. And I just started to, my career was just going, I had to focus on it and I couldn't do the book blog anymore. But when I got into it, I was like, Mon Newton. And there's just a feeling that you get, and it is about taste. It's just about what you respond to. And it's so subjective. But when I would read her work and when I would interact with her online, I was just very it appealed to me. And I, I, I think that every person is so different about the way they, they promote themselves, about the way they present themselves to the world. And I think they should be. And I think that's great. Um, that doesn't mean everyone's going to like it. And that's what is really hard for people to understand is that like, not everyone's going to like you and everybody's kind of like aiming for that. Cause again, they want to be successful. They want to be with New York times bestsellers. They want to be able to publish all the time. They want to go viral. Um, so it's either you have to be liked by everyone or you're trolling. And I, that's just not my, that's not where I live. In, in so, yep. okay. So just to kind of continue <laughs> in this vein, like if you're working with an author editorially before you go out on submission with a manuscript and they're very candid on the page or they're aiming in that direction, like there are, the thing that I, it's so hard for me to articulate because it's like very specific to a particular work. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it always feels like there are certain things people hold back on. Mm-hmm. Like they won't talk about how they pay the rent mm-hmm. on the page because nobody wants to hear it or mm-hmm. that would, that would undermine the cool factor or they don't talk about, I don't know what it would be, but like there's a, there's a process of inclusion and withholding 
that I guess is part of the art of creating characters that people like or creating a persona on the page that people like and feel affinity for. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that requires a kind of dishonesty that makes it feel crafted like an image, like a polished image thing. Yeah. And I mistrust it a little bit, but yet I get it. Cause like, if you make people go, Ooh, <laughs> they're probably going to put the book down. Yeah. I think writers are liars, <laughs> which I like. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You're creating a, you're creating an impression or a feeling that you want someone to have in response to you or your work. I it's like a seduction. Cool. Yeah. I it's like a seduction. Yeah. yeah. But it's about how you go about that. That is, is, is what appeals to a person or doesn't appeal to a person. You know what my impulse is to just tell people everything Yeah. and then they just go, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> TMI. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> or just like, dude, it's like too much. Or, you know, I feel like I tell writers to lie more all the time. I just say lie more. Okay. Like especially fiction writers. Right. I think fiction writers. I'm going to, are... I'm going to do this. You guys, I'm going to start bullshitting everybody. <laughs> just lie. It's fun. I don't know. Like you don't have to have a reason for everything you do. You can just do it because it's fun right? or it's interesting to you or it's an avenue you've never, or something you've never tried. And that's what I mean about hardworkingness is like, you have to have the drive to try different things um, for no reason, just for the sake of it. I think that one of my favorite old pieces of writing advice is that write the iceberg piece of writing advice. And that means that like 80% of what you've thought and put down or written is not going to be what the writer sees. The and reader I, sees. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, the reader sees. And I think a lot of writers nowadays are uh, horrified by that idea because we're always, we're, it's just a different world where it's like, you know, we have to churn stuff out. Um, books need to come out every, you know, however many years that you're not forgotten or whatever. Um, there's no time to write the iceberg. <laughs> I just don't agree with that. I think that's what, what I like. I like people who have made a lot of decisions that make it seamless on the page. Um, and I think a lot of that is about lying. And like, again, it's being decisive and moving in a direction and just, and, and following your instincts. Uh, but yeah, I always tell my fiction writers, they can lie more. Yeah. I mean, that's what <laughs> fiction is. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that, that is like, that's like the, it's like a strange thing to overlook. Mm hmm. Especially if you're working, I think, in an autobiographical vein where you feel some uh, like allegiance to reality. And yeah. it's like, no, no, you're writing a fucking novel. Change their name. Make it up. Make it up. Go crazy. It doesn't have to be the way it actually happened. Right. Um, that was, for me was very liberating because I am writing a novel, of course. Um, do you, do you even, <laughs> I don't even know if I believe in memoir. I yeah. have such a bad memory. It's all a novel. For me, um, I can write that short. I don't know if I could write a long memoir. It would have to be an essay. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Because I can, and I, I have to draw more in, because I don't, I guess I don't find myself that interesting, but I can, I find my experience of the world interesting and I find other people's experiences of the world interesting. And so I wouldn't, I, it's different, but, um, but yeah, when I finally told myself like, oh, you don't have to tell the truth. You can lie. You can make stuff up. It doesn't have to be exactly the way that it was, or it doesn't even have to be the exactly way I originally envisioned it. Yeah. That was really liberating for me. So I always tell that to, you know, to writers. The only, uh, I want to make sure I flag this just because I think that this would be something people listening might, uh, come back with is like, if you are a, like a dedicated diarist or you keep like a journal every day, yeah. then I think maybe you could write a memoir with some degree of certainty. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Haile Julevitz is the folded clock though. was like, a diary, right? right? But I think that it read very fictionally as well. And it was very, 
it was really cool in the way that it subverted the idea of trusting someone's like stated exact remembrance of the way things worked. Um, I don't know. I, I like nonfiction that you're unsure of too. Like, I think a lot of my nonfiction writers are writing about their subjective experience of the world. Um, and that is, I love that. I love it when I just like totally disagree with something or I would have reacted completely differently. Like, um, Triangle House has a book club every once in a while. And we did Three Women as one of our books. And everybody was talking about it as like a work of journalism, which it, it is. Wait, who's it by? Um, Lisa Tadeo. Okay, yeah. Um, it's about three I was women. Thinking of, I was thinking of Chloe Caldwell, but her book is just, just women. women. Yeah. And there's also Women Talking by Miriam Toves. Okay. So there's a lot of women right. speaking. And then there's Topics of Conversation by Miranda Was there a woman's back on the cover or no? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, just the words, three women. Uh -huh. Um but so there were all these people talking about it and all of a sudden someone just piped up and they were like, yeah, that's exactly what I would have done. And the whole conversation had been about how it was like this girl was doing something that like maybe felt off to these people or like just completely alien to their experience of the world. And then everyone got quiet. Like, oh yeah, like I don't get to decide how everybody moves through the world. Like there's this completely opposite opinion in this room that aligns with this experience that I would never, ever have or feel or whatever. But and like, that was amazing. It was a beautiful moment. <laughs> well, no, the, but like, I think the, like maybe the, like one of the larger points is that the personal is universal. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't necessarily find yourself in concert with the, with what the writer is saying, it gives you something to react to. And you feel like what you're reacting to is authentic. Like the person is sharing like the minutia of their personal yeah. experience. And, uh, there's value in that, even if you're not in sync with it. I love an authoritative voice. I was, that's another thing I wanted to ask you. About. I love it. I love it when someone is like, <laughs> I love it when someone is sure of themselves. I love to be swept away with other people's certainty. Yeah. Because I don't feel that way about anything. Me neither. <laughs> but this, yeah. this is, this goes to the cool, like the cool, yeah. uh, cynical me being grumpy about it. Is that like, I'm like, oh, so like to be a successful writer, you sort of have to like come off on the page. Like I fucking know. And I, yeah. I get it too. Cause I read it and I'm like, wow, like HL Mencken was clear about what he <laughs> thought. Like, holy shit. doesn't mean we agree with them, but, but you, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, they take a stand and they have like, they don't seem to have any doubt. Yeah. And all I am is doubt. Yeah. So how the fuck do I, like, you know, cause I think what people want is they want the cool kind of like, you know, arch, like not like wearing it on their um, sleeve kind of thing, but, but sort of there's like... definitely a line. Cause it, uh, this is voice. We're talking about voice. Okay. Um, and everyone always says, I want to read a good, I need a good voice. I need a strong voice. I've actually stopped saying that as much because voice isn't as important to me, um, as it used to be. Um, but I love authoritative. I love it in fiction. I love it in nonfiction. Um, I just don't have a problem with someone who isn't afraid to get in debate. And that's fine. Like, I think everybody's, again, everybody's different, but yeah, I, I think that there are some people who naturally want to play devil's advocate. And so they can't get, put themselves in the flow of the authoritative voice. Cause their just natural reaction is to be like, oh, that was wrong. Or I disagree with you. Or just using that word disqualifies your argument because I just don't, it's too specific. I'm so full of shit. <laughs> I'm so full of shit. And I know it. And like, I'm always like, I, I never feel good about, I, I shouldn't say never. See, I'm doing it now. Yes. I rarely, <laughs> I'm trying to be accurate. I rarely feel good about myself 
or about an experience I have when I either write or communicate or behave in a way that indicates like certainty. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I know. I always wind yeah. up after the fact going like, dude, you don't know. And you're, you know, what was, what is your problem? And yet I go, you know, it happens a lot. Yeah. I think for me, I think about the canon and like the canonical work that is like a touchstone for me. And I'm a big Nabokov fan. Um, and that's certainty in his voice. Like, do you ever read Nabokov and not just like immediately stream into whatever he wants you to think and believe and like convinces you he's just like so convincing um again and that doesn't mean that i agree with what he's saying or what his protagonists say but i like to be convinced i enjoy it um doesn't mean i'm permanently convinced it can be a temporary convincing but in fiction i, like I, th I mean th <laughs> i think in fiction yeah i think in nonfiction, it's like i want more like it's got to be done artfully, but yeah. I, I guess like the mode that I have to work in just because of how I'm wired and the mode that I think I respond to most as a reader is when somebody can be artfully confused. I love that too. Like openly confused. I want to feel like I'm dealing with an honest broker. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I guess what I'm getting at is that I just feel like there's a withholding that's the intention of which is to be cool. Mm -hmm. And I bristle at that. I think what you're talking about a little bit, and you correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, talk, is you, <laughs> talk this through with me. I need help. <laughs> um, is that a narrative, a searching narrative, is something that you appreciate of like some someone that's like looking for answers, but maybe wouldn't say that they had them. Um, I, and I feel like I like that also. Um, and I think that all this stuff has its own place, and it's all about like the writer executing it. Like, yeah, I think that you know. There's so there, we have like a glut of writers. We have so many writers so writing many. so many books, and no one can read them all, and no one would even be able to try. And that's what we're seeing with the way that book publicity is coming out now. Um, we see lists instead of reviews. We see interviews instead of reviews. Um, and I think that it's all about you know you have to find, but no matter what you still have to find what you like on your own and um this is one thing that publishing needs to get better at is knowing how to convince someone to buy a book um i don't think that they that people i don't think i know how to do it but like does anybody i feel like it's <laughs> all anybody, like yeah. it's like a word of my, i mean i i can't even tell you how many times i've had this conversation like how do how does a book become a hit i like to ask people why did you buy that book and like everybody has their own algorithm for when they finally decide to actually put money on the table and but, buy a book. <laughs> but let me, let me, let me posit something more often than not. It's because somebody recommended it to them. Yeah. But I think it has to be a certain kind of recommendation from a certain kind of person. Like I have tons of people who recommend me books all the time right. and I would never buy it. Right. But for me, it's like, it's different. It's like, there's this one person who, if, if they've recommended me books before that I've loved and they recommend it to me again, I'm going to buy it. Or sometimes it'll be like if three people have given me a 50-50 shot and I've liked it, then maybe I'll buy it. I have a group text with some friends and we all talk about the books that we hate. We call it um, love-hate knuckle tattoos. <laughs> 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 and it's just like four of us. And um, in general, we hate every book everybody else loves or like we hate the same books. It doesn't yeah. even have to be like a contrarian thing, but we usually hate the same books. That's a good, and, like, that's a, that's a good of, little text thread to be on. Yes. <laughs> you seem jealous. <laughs> can, can I get in on this? <laughs> um, but we are very, we don't let, we wouldn't let anyone in. 
Right. Because we can't let everyone know the book. It's a closed society. But if any of those three women recommend a book to me, I'm going to read it. Yeah. And if they say, I've read it, so you don't have to, I'm not going to read it. And I think everybody has their version of that. And it's our job to figure that out and to cover as many bases as we can. And what you're talking about is like a really good data point for me to be like, next time I'm recommending a book, I'm like, can, I can do better at recommending a book to Brad. Um, and that's my job as an agent is to be a matchmaker. So I, a lot of people don't know like what an agent's day is like, but um, there are days where I have a breakfast, a lunch, a coffee, and a call all with people who I maybe have never met or I've met them before and I'm trying to reconnect with them. But it's all based on I will try to sell them a book in some capacity, whether it's an editor or a publicist or a a film person from L.A. who's doing book to film. And I'm trying to convince them that my book is the book for them, right? And so I have to kind of start to remember their their habits and what they like. I have to remember if they loved – my sister, the serial killer. I have to remember if they loved um, trust exercise. Wait, do you keep like a spreadsheet on people? No, it's just like mental. Mental, okay. But um, I have to remember all that stuff. So it's something that I try to be a good listener about. But also, like, just because I disagree with them doesn't mean I can't try and sell them a book. Because ma- I don't like a book that they like doesn't mean I don't. That doesn't give me insight. Well, how many and how many editors are you launching with? Do you like? Do you have face to face time with a lot of them? Yes, I have at least two lunches a week. Sometimes on those days, I'm also having breakfast. So yeah, it's it's like breakfast, lunch, and coffee. So sometimes I'll have three in one day. Is that how a lot of the deals get done? Is it in person? Um, No, but I will try to, for every single lunch I have, um, pick one book of mine to really pitch. And it'll be something I already think that they'll like from knowing them. And from maybe reading some of their books or um, following them on Twitter or Instagram, stuff like that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, maybe they won't like that one. I'll have to bring up another one. But it's usually like me having a purposeful meeting with them to pitch them a specific book that I will then be sending them in the near future. So, you know, I'll just be like trying to steer the conversation towards a topic that can naturally lead to talking about a book or I can straight up and say it like, this is a book I have. I think you'll love it. And then a lot of times I can tell right away. I had lunch with someone recently and I did, I talked about two books with them. The first one they glided over and I'm like, okay, I'm not sending them that book. The second one, they were like, please send me this book when it's ready. And I have to remember like when I got that book, this writer, this editor really loved that idea and like is excited about it. So it's a lot of that exact way you're talking about, like being able to kind of say this person doesn't like sincerity this person doesn't like a cool too cool narrator this person really loves fragmented um structure this person really loves experimentation with point perspective um it's can, also it's also taste specific yeah i can tell a lot by um a, an editor if they like liked asymmetry by lisa halliday <laughs> i'm like if you liked it i can kind of like know, you know. what you like yeah. well and i think too like at a certain point in an agent's career if you've had enough success um you know picking books that have done well or well enough in the marketplace. I think there are a lot of agents who are, a- or not a lot, but there are some agents who are able, and correct me if I'm wrong, who are able to sell an author in a book on the basis of that reputation, mm-hmm. either partially or in full. It's like if this person represents, if they're, if they're putting their name on this, that carries a lot of weight, right? I, ho- I think so, and I hope so. Um, you know, I think that because of who I've always represented, which has been a lot of 
perspectives and voices that maybe haven't always been at the table in publishing. Um, early on, it was a little bit of a generational divide. So I would go out with something and everybody on the sales team, the publicity team and the editorial team would love it. And then the boss would be like, I literally hate this. Who's going to buy this? <laughs> and I would be like so frustrated because this this would be like a you know 50-year-old woman and all the you know, under thirties, all the millennials were like going crazy over what I was saying. Yeah, all of our employees were like, yes. <laughs> and like, um, so it took me a while to earn that trust. And I think I've earned it now. Um, but I always knew that that's what I was doing is I was starting to earn trust. Um, I think that again, as an agent, it's a slow burn. You have to work really hard and your taste tend needs to be borne out by the market as well as the bubble of publishing. Like you could sell a novel at auction and have 10 bidders for it and be an, an agent who's never sold anything before in their lives. It could be your first sale and you could make tons of money off it. Your book still hasn't been sold to the public. You still don't know if you're good at what you do. Um, it takes a while to figure out if readers agree with you. Um, and eventually I think that they, they do in one way or the other, if you, if you help your authors find that readership, but, um, do you have to do, yeah. cause I was going to say, like, is that part of how you conceive of your job as well? It's not just helping your author, uh, as an advocate for them on the business side of things, pre-publication and into the publication process. But also once the book is in print, mm -hmm. you're advocating to help drum up interest? Yeah, because I want their careers to be really strong so I can help them sell their next book. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's good business for you too, right? Yeah. And I also consider myself like an amateur publicist. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot. I follow a lot of critics. I follow a lot of um, magazine editors and I follow a lot of readers. And um, so I'm always thinking like, oh, like for example, my, my client's book Temporary is coming out in March. It's you know, I've been working on it for a really long time. Hillary's a wonderful writer. Um, people are starting to read it. And the, the critic Merva Omre just tweeted about it yesterday, being like, I loved it. And I was like, yes. I think I put her on the list of galley people to be like, send her a galley. Hmm. And if I didn't, I would have because I know what Merva likes and I know this this writer's work. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm an amateur publicist. It's kind of funny because like, I probably could go if I wanted to do that. But... I like being a dilettante, being able to do a lot of little things. And part of that is thinking about, which I think that publishing needs to get better at, who's going to be reading these books mm -hmm. and how to reach them. And again, that algorithm of like, if Marva Omri writes a really good review of a book, like there are certain people who are going to pick it up. So we want to reach her with this book. And I think there's other critics like that too. I think, um, I'm trying to think of some other critics who definitely have that Pearl Seagal. If she writes a gluing review, people are going to actually buy that book. Um, and so it's about like reaching out to them and trying to put them on the radar. Um, and even after the book comes out, let's say that the publicity, um, the publicity wasn't that great on a book, let's say. Um, it's my job to then, you know, powwow with the writer, tete-a-tete -tete with the writer and say, okay, well, it's our turn now to try and take this into our own hands. And I'll do a mailing for a book and write notes to people. Um, I will also, because I have a magazine as part of what I do, I really like to do maybe a second serial for a book. And I do this for people that aren't my own clients. What do you mean a second serial? So second serial is when a book has already been out and you publish an excerpt of it. Oh, okay. So I like to do this for any book that maybe didn't get enough attention and that fits the um, voice of the magazine. Um, we'll do an like So we did one of Leslie Nicarima's amazing collection that came out a few years ago. Um She's wonderful. I'm a big fan of her work. And I read her 
collection so and I loved it so much. I was like, oh, I need this to be in Triangle House, and I need more people to be talking about this writer. And we were able to get an, an excerpt of the book into the magazine. So that's something that I also really like to do. I like to try and help pair people with someone who would be an interviewee for them. Um, even my clients who are in between books, I'm helping them build their platform for their next book. So I'm saying, okay, do you have a friend who's coming out with a book who you can interview them, um, put yourself out there more, be part of the conversation? What so about an author who doesn't want to be on social media? Is that a problem? I don't think it's a problem. I think that what you're looking for is your way to connect with people, and that can be in person, and I think that's just as great. Um, I would suggest that you maybe write reviews and pitch them, or you do interviews and pitch them, or you start a reading series, um, start a podcast. Is this enough? Is this enough? <laughs> I feel like this has got to be enough for me. I'm doing the podcast. Is, yeah. that, is that enough? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I feel like it's super meaningful. Like The connections that you make, however you make them, whatever keeps your voice authentic, and true to yourself and just like is is synergistic with what you're putting out there in the world in terms of your books is the way that you should move forward and some people are really good at it on in different levels like there are a lot of writers who are actually better at instagram it's yeah. more visual for them and it doesn't sap their parts of their brain that, that they need for writing um and i think that's great i don't or but if none own, of it feels own, good, then own, don't do it. <laughs> it's owned by Facebook. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I I would be hypocritical if I was like, you have to be on Facebook because I'm not on but Facebook. But Instagram is owned by Facebook, so it's like they got gotcha. you. They got gotcha. you. Yeah. Fuck those people. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if only we had all done hipstamatic instead of Instagram that's back right. in the day. <laughs> I mean, they probably would have bought that. Um, so before I let you go, uh, do's and don'ts. Okay. <laughs> Like I think just some brass tacks, yeah. uh, like, or brass tacks, some, like some good fundamental advice yeah. for writers who might be out there with uh -huh. a novel in the drawer or one in progress or a memoir, whatever it is, mm -hmm. thinking about an agent and the possibility of getting one, like, what would you recommend to somebody, you know, in terms of outreach, in terms of how to get noticed, mm -hmm. things you love, things you don't love so much? Um, I think to not think of every opportunity as the, your only opportunity or to not think of someone else's ability to make or break your career. I just don't believe in either of those paths. I think that, for example, if you are at a writer's conference and you're meeting with an agent, um, which I think is a really great thing to do, um, you don't think this agent is going to be my one shot at getting an agent or this person is definitely going to be my agent. Um, you think, how can I um, maximize my time with this person to learn something? And um, or you ask them a really pointed question, try to get something out of them. So you bring your query letter to them and you're like, can you read this real fast and tell me if it's good or tell me if it's bad. Um, but you're not sitting in that room trying to like go crazy and ner being so nervous about the idea of like, this is the person who's going to represent me. So what um, is a good query letter to you? Short and sweet. I think of it as a arrow to the sample material. You're just trying to convince me to actually read your work. Because again, it's all about the work and who cares if you you know, went to Iowa and you but were agents, friends with whatever. Agents do care a little bit about, like, I think like this is, this is what I recommend to people and maybe, uh, I'm doing it wrong, but I, I always say short. It should be one, yeah. like one computer screen, like yeah. no, no scrolling, no scrolling. Agree. And just, and you can also, I say like name dropping to a certain extent, mm -hmm. lets the agent know, like you've done some stuff. It's yeah. like you're vetting yourself for them in the email. Like, Oh, I got my MFA here and I've published here, here and here. Mm -hmm. 
this is my first novel. Yeah. Um, it's got a, a, you know, my thesis advisor has blurbed it. Here's their blurb or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that would be ideal. But like, again, I could scroll to the actual sample material and still not like it. You know what I mean? Like, right. sure. It's a lot of that is great, but I really don't care if you went to Iowa. Like I want to actually read your work. Um, and you have to convince me to actually read your work. Um, and maybe that's just because you've queried me and you say you've written a YA novel and I don't represent YA, I'm not going to read your work. So you have to do your research and you have to really, again, that's why you take advantage of any moment you have to like ask a question to learn more about the industry because research and targeted approach is the best way. So the, the, the query that's the most likely to get me to read a book, uh, read the book or like read the material is one that says, because of your work on this book, I think we'd be a good fit. Or I saw you tweet that you loved women talking. I think you'll like my work. And it, it matches the taste. It's not about... And it shows they've done their homework. It, and it matches... It shows that... And this... Because this is the way that I run my business. I say, okay, well, what editors have what tastes and how am I going to approach it that way? And I think that you're your own agent when you're looking for an agent. And so you're like, okay, well, Monica loved women talking last year. Um, and she represents Chelsea Hodson and she represents Larissa Pham. Um, and so how do I triangulate that to understand that she would like my work too? And that's always going to be the, the query that makes me read it, especially if you've bought the book and I'm like, Oh damn, you've bought my client's book. I really should read your query. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it just shows that we like the th- same things. We have a middle ground. Um, and that's kind of where you find success and where you can have a good collaboration is that you have a shared vision. Um, I would say don't ever query me or, I mean, I don't know how every agent feels about this, but like I had someone tag me in an Instagram post and query me once. Um, Did they ever slide into your DMs? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I just ignore you're it. You're not into that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, do read the agent's website because they tell you how to approach them. Like there's no guesswork. We all tell you. Do you, do you um, list your clients? I don't list my clients, but I list the books I've worked on. Oh, you um, do? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basically the same yeah. thing. Yeah, but like not every one of my clients has published a book. So right, 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 right. But, I mean that makes. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> th- that would be the ones to share, right? Yeah. Well, um, and it's the ones that I feel comfortable sharing because they're the ones who I can maybe like put a, a link to pre-order their book, or you know, it's just like I have had a direct hand in in their career because I've represented a book that they put out. Yeah. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's the common or, or one of the common pieces of advice is like you know read the acknowledgments mm-hmm. in an author's book. They thank their agent figure out the, you know, the world that you're operating in. If you feel like your book has some, you know, some kind of like DNA in common with, you know, Chelsea Hodson's book or whatever, then it would make sense to submit to you. Yeah. You do have to be a little bit sophisticated about it in that way. Sometimes people, I think just have no clue. They're just like blindly submitting. Yeah. I get a lot of queries that are just not even right for me. Like one, I got a query once it was like, this is the explaining of like what football is all about because like women watch football and like, sure, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a feminist woman and I think women should get to watch football and like understand it. But I also think that if they, that they can, <laughs> like, I don't think they need to be explained it, you know? Like, right. So it was like a very tone deaf query that I got. Um, but I mean, every agent gets that. Like, or you hear the story of a writer calling an agent and being like, I'm downstairs in your lobby right now. Has that ever happened? Yes. Oh, wow. This is your only chance to talk to me. And you're like, okay, bye. (laughs) Because like, you know, agents have a job to do and they have their routines just like any other job. Like I don't show up at your job being like, you're a nurse. This is your only chance to treat me. Like, and like do things that aren't part of the process. Like I go on your website, I book an appointment and I 
go to the doctor just like anybody else. It's the same thing. Like, I have my processes for a reason, and it says how to reach me. I have my email address in my Twitter bio. I'm not hard to find. I'm just like, follow the directions. Because otherwise, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. Why would you query an agent who's currently close to queries? They're not looking at them. They're going to delete them. They're going to reopen. And that's when you query them. Um, I don't ever close to queries, but I respect the agents who do that because it's like they're putting up boundaries that they need to get their work done. Right. Um, they're doing it for a reason. Um, I don't show up to a closed restaurant and expect them to serve me. <laughs> I actually, I actually do. Okay. I, I do. I stand, I stand there just knocking until someone shows up. Wait until the next morning. <laughs> Um, well, it's great to talk to you. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that people at home would want to know. Like the, I guess the other thing is like where to find you, your triangle yeah. house. And then again, what kinds, are you mostly repping women or is it a mix? No, I represent a mix. Um, I, I, oh, you asked me this question earlier and I kind of avoided it. Um, I represent fiction and nonfiction on the fiction side. I pretty much only literary fiction. Um, Nothing but cool, certain protagonists. You right? know, <laughs> <laughs> I love reading commercial fiction and I grew up reading like a lot of mysteries and horror and fantasy, but I found that I'm not as good at knowing when other people like that stuff. Like I would go out with something and think it was very commercial and editors would come back to me and be like, this is too literary. And I'd be like, I guess you're telling me something that I need to hear yeah, about who I am. Yeah. And so I stopped putting commercial fiction in my, um, you know, MSWL or whatever. And, um, I focus on literary fiction. I really do like plot driven literary fiction as well. Um, but yeah, well, yeah. Why does literary fiction not, I mean, it can have a plot. The phrase commercial fiction is kind of misleading because it just means books that sell and that can be anything. So I actually don't like that term in general. I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, so I don't even put that in my, I don't even, I don't even put that in my bio or anything like that. But I work on literary fiction and on the nonfiction side, it's a little bit more wide ranging. I'll do journalism, memoir, essays. I've, I, essayists are some of my favorite um, clients because I also think that they will write other stuff someday also. <laughs> I love I love writers who write in multiple genres. Um, I do a little bit of poetry and I do um, some narrative nonfiction, some science writing. Um, so pretty wide range. Yeah. And then nonfiction. I also do photography books also or like art books or sometimes a cookbook. Um, so my nonfiction is definitely a little bit more wide ranging than my fiction. Awesome. Well, yeah. uh, I appreciate it. And I'll plug uh, like your website and your Twitter, uh, like you know, in just a moment after we finish this. But <laughs> I'm glad to catch you on your uh, stop here in Los Angeles, and uh, we'll be watching to see, you know, which authors you uh, you you know rep and publish and the ones that publish. Uh, I feel like you're building a great list, and Thank you. um, you're doing it well. So congratulations. Thank you. It was really nice to meet you. Oh, I'm supposed to here. also, um, uh, my buddy, Joey Grantham wants me to plug, oh, uh, yeah, Ashley, uh, Ashley, her short story collection, sleepovers is coming out. This say spring. the full name. Give it, let's give Ashley it a plug. Brian Phillips yeah. sleepovers coming out with hub city. Um, it's a really wonderful collection. Yeah. And I, I'm actually having them over for dinner and they became vegan. I know I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been appraised of their conversion to veganism because yeah. I'm a vegetarian too, or I, vegan. Or I know real. I brought you a vegan cookie. Did you? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I like you. Uh, but yeah, no, Joey has been, uh, so I've, I'm I've been planning for their dinner, but see, this is the thing though. As of a uh, lot, I mean, I've been vegetarian, um, 
I say like 99% of my, uh, of the time for my adult life. Mm-hmm. When I go to have dinner at somebody's house, I tend to, the rule is I tend to eat what's served. I love to cook for people. That's part of me as an agent. I like cook for a lot of my clients. I invite them over and I have them over for, even if it's like a party or something, I always have snacks. I love to cook for people. So when someone is a vegan, it's just a challenge for me. It's fun. I'm oh, like, you like it? Yeah. I, okay. I love looking for recipes. I love menu planning. It's one of the things I do to soothe myself. I'll be like not able to sleep and I'll be like, okay, pretend that I'm having Brad over for a dinner party. What would I cook for him? And I like go through the menu and I like put myself to sleep thinking about food. <laughs> you, are you are you a good uh, cook? I think so. I hope so. I work hard at it. I think I'm getting better as I get older. Well, you practice. I practice. Yeah. I have this. Um, I also love to cook with my husband. We're getting better at it. Like he would not say that. He would be like, she's crazy in the kitchen. She always <laughs> yells at me. Um, but we have certain meals that we've like gotten into a rhythm and we can just cook together. Like we have this really good... Um, Julia Tertian recipe with a turkey ricotta meatballs. And then I make this tomato butter that I got from this restaurant that closed in Brooklyn. And like, we just like can, can make it kind of instinctively. So wow, um, it's like a dance. Yeah, it is. What are you going to make for Joey and uh, Ashley? I think I'm going to buy really expensive beans on the internet. They cost like so much money, but like, um, like four hundred dollars worth of beans, <laughs> twenty dollars okay. for a pound of beans, which okay. feels like a lot of money to me to spend. For sure, beans. yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to braise them in tomatoes, and then I'm going to make some roasted carrots. I'm going to make this salad that I call my New Year's Eve salad because I made it for New Year's Eve this year <laughs> um, with dill and some roasted leeks and some romaine. Um, Damn. Yeah, I love I love to eat and I love to cook, so it's a big part of my life. Okay. Well, it's great to meet you. In per- it's great to meet you in person. Likewise, um, yeah. You know, I've kind of well, now me- you're not on Twitter, so this is the only way to meet me. You got to come here. I'm, I'm just going to be sitting here, just doing nothing. Basically, it's a big um, scam to make people listen to your podcast because they don't get your wisdom on Twitter anymore. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, why am I? Why am I spreading this out? Come meet me here if you want to. If you want any Brad Listy, this is where I'm at. Just talking in my garage. <laughs> and plus, too, like this way, like on Twitter, if I'm in your timeline, I guess that you can mute me. But otherwise, I'm just sort of like showing up against your will. At least this way people have to want to listen you know what i liked about your twitter is that i liked it when i could watch you interact with writers because that's i think that's a secret part of twitter that don't understand like if you follow both people you get to see a conversation right and that's something that i kind of do a little bit secretly because like it's kind of not cool to like like other people's conversations that you're not a part of but it's like eavesdropping and like i would see you tweeting at joey and at chelsea and at lisa and elisa and i would be like listening kind of over here. It would be like, I'd be sitting next to you at a coffee shop and like yeah. listening in. And that was, that's a fun part of Twitter for me. I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, the jokes and the conversations, that's the best of it. All the political shit and <laughs> just trying to process the news, which I mean, look, I, you know, I will defend it as an, like a, a kind of necessity, but one that is definitely not without toxicity. Yeah. I don't know. It's just hard to like, it's like drinking from a fire hose, basically. We all have to walk through the worlds and figure out how it's the best for us. And I don't judge anyone for making a decision that makes their lives better. <laughs> I, I judge very harshly everyone. No, I, uh, I don't know. I don't like to, I don't want to sound like, cause I, that's the thing. It's annoying when somebody quits Twitter and they're like, I quit Twitter. And it's yeah. like, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I just... I was on Twitter. Yeah, you did. I gave it my all. You did. I left nothing on the field. <laughs> and now I'm just re- retired. Well, that's fine. And the thing is, I say this about New York City, too. It's always there for you. It's not going anywhere. 
Don't try to drag me back in. (laughs) Just trying to drag me back in. I don't care what you do, um, (laughs) but it's there for you if you want it. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks again for coming over to talk. Thank you for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is uh, Monica Woods. She's a literary agent. You can find her on the internet at, at uh, triangle.house, www.triangle.house. It's uh, Triangle House Literary. You can also follow Monica on Twitter. Her handle is at books I just read. She's good on Twitter. You can follow uh, Triangle House on Twitter, too. Just go track it down. Do You guys know how to do this, right? Thank you to Kill Rock, or, uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, you need, need to get something off your chest, you can write to me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you like this program, if you find it, uh, of benefit to you and you would like to support the show you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod tip your server don't forget about the other people app this podcast has its own official app it's the other people with brad listy app it's uh free it's a free app it's a good app go get the app So uh, next week on the program, my guest is Jen Shapland. Very excited to share that one with you. We had a a really nice conversation. And uh, yeah, it was before all this chaos started. I feel nostalgic for these interviews that I did before uh, this chaos started. Because now I got to do them all. You know, everybody's book tour got canceled. Everyone's, you know, we got to do it over Skype. Wah. So uh, stay tuned for Jen Chaplin next week. New shows every Wednesday, same as usual. I'm here for you in the pandemic. Stay safe out there. Stay sane if you can. Read something. All right? (laughs) 